For those watching on live stream, today is Father's Day in Australia. I want to bless the fathers that are watching on live stream. You have been a blessing to your children, and I just declare to you that you will be a greater blessing tomorrow to them than you were today or yesterday. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Um, so what better topic to speak on today on Father's Day than fathers? But I'm going to extend that out a little bit and tell you that I'm speaking today on fathers, sons, and orphans. Ooh. And, and I've, become, uh, I've become very aware uh, over the last week or so as God has been opening up this uh, topic to me that in the Old Testament, there's not much emphasis placed on God as a father in Scripture. Now, we know that God doesn't change. And I'm just saying the emphasis of the Old Testament is not on God as a father. And in fact, a direct reference to God as father is only found in around 16 verses in the entire Old Testament. You can check this for yourselves. You can see uh, the principle at work because we look at it from a New Testament perspective, but in actual terms of hard-coded references to God as Father, it only happens 16 times. In the New Testament, this is turned upside down and God as Father is mentioned a 100 times in the Gospel of John alone. Now that should spark something in our hearts that as blood-bought believers in Jesus Christ, we have something that the people in the, under the old covenant did not have to the extent that we do. And so uh, why is that? It's because Jesus, the forerunner, I didn't think there was going to be a part five to this forerunner series, but this is it. This is part five, fathers, sons and orphans, Jesus, the forerunner, changed everything and he modelled sonship. And when you look at the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, this is what it says. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things. I want you to hang on to that concept that Jesus is the heir of all things because we're going to come back to this in great power, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. Jesus is not just your Lord and Saviour. He's the guy who is intimately involved when God spoke and worlds were formed. And Jesus is the forerunner example to us of sonship. And I want you to see today that true sonship is not possible without the indwelling and overflow of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see it not as just an idea being preached to you. I want to give you the biblical foundation for it because you must know that the overwhelming presence of God in your life qualifies to, to become sons. And not just immature sons, but sons raised up to the fullness of the stature of Christ. 
And so no matter how good or bad your earthly relationship with your natural father was or is, let me tell you, there is no perfect earthly father. Anyone ever met a perfect earthly father? Doesn't exist. No matter how good or bad your earthly relationship with your natural father was or is, there is no father as good as your heavenly father. And he has already proved it because his most precious thing, his only begotten son, he asked to get up on a cross so that we could come into the same inheritance. And so when we look at a contrast between the Old Testament and the New and what was hinted at in the Old Testament and what became manifested in the New, I would say to you that uh, this revelation of sonship is centered on the Spirit of the Lord becoming habitational instead of just visitational. You see that in Hebrews 1 verse 1 where he says, God in past uh, spoke through the prophets to the fathers. Now God speaks directly to us because of our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And we can see the very moment when Jesus became the forerunner of this for us in John 1, 32, 33. And here we have two forerunners coming together because we got John the Baptist and we got Jesus, the Son of God, and they meet on the banks of the Jordan River. And this is what happens. John 1, 32, John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. He remained. He didn't come down and lift when the prophecy was gone or the anointing was, was, the anointing was not lifted off. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came down and remained upon Jesus. So what was visitational in the Old Testament becomes habitational in the New and it's fulfilled in you and I. Jesus modelled in more ways than sometimes we really want to acknowledge what this means for us. A life lived out in full submission to the Father through the Holy Spirit indwelling us, leading us into all truth and then empowering us to live out that truth through grace. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Does everybody know that truth, that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth? Sometimes that truth is very comforting. Like God is our heavenly father and he's good and he has a good plan for your life. Amen. That's comforting. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth can also be discomforting. Sometimes the truth of God is extremely discomforting. I can tell you that ever since this COVID thing broke out, I have not been in a place of comfort. God has not even allowed me a place of false comfort. God has been continually dealing and dealing and dealing with me. And I know he's been continually dealing and dealing and dealing with you. (laughs) 
I can see that I've got a few amens going on in the house this morning. <laughs> you know, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, we've all got this destiny, taking territory for the Lord and all the rest of it. But when Joshua has an encounter with the commander of the army of the Lord, he goes, are you on our side or are you for our enemies? And, and, and the commander goes, no. Are you for us or are you for the enemies? No. Nah. <laughs> God has his agenda, his purpose, his plan. And sometimes we think the way that he should move is nothing like the way he ends up moving. Discomforting truth. Forget about being comfortable. You're not called to be comfortable. You're called to be inhabited by the spirit of truth. And thank God the spirit of grace, the same spirit comes alongside you as a comforter to go, it's all right, John, you're going to get through. Because <laughs> the spirit of truth is impartial and it discerns our deepest motives. The spirit of truth speaks through the word of God. The word of God comes and divides soul and spirit and he goes, oh, so that's what's going on. But Hebrews 10.29 tells us that he is also the spirit of grace. And don't get the, uh, don't ever fall under the lie that grace gives you an excuse or a provision to live your life how you want to live. Because you don't belong to you anymore. You belong to him. That grace, the spirit of grace, the grace that comes upon your life is what empowers us to walk free of the past as we accept his invitation to allow him to cleanse and purify us. There's been a lot of cleansing and purifying going on. God has been exposing the church and I say church advisedly, exposing the church and exposing the shortcomings of the church because church is not what he wants. What he wants is ecclesia. So we're going to come back to Jesus in a few minutes. That's not the altar call. <laughs> there may be a bit of that going on. Who knows? We're going to come back to Jesus in a few minutes, but we're going to skip forward to the ministry of the apostle Paul and I want to touch on, not touch on, I want to, want to dig into uh, how he breaks open the whole concept of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8 and what it means for us. And uh, we're not going to, I'm not going to try and work my way through Romans 8 verse by verse because if I did that, we would be here for a long time. I know that uh, Pastor Miles, who's speaking here in a couple of Friday nights, was telling me about a friend of his in, in England who decided he was going to preach the book of Romans to his congregation and it took him two years of Sunday mornings. So we're not going there this morning. I want to, I want to uh, break this open and then focus in on a particular thing. Remember, we're talking about fathers, sons and orphans. And so Paul gives us this revelation about some of the differences between sons and orphans by cracking this open. So just paraphrasing the first 12 verses of Romans 8, and um, 
you would do well to just study it yourself. I can't dig into all that this morning. But basically, verse 1 tells us that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2 tells us we're free from the law of sin and death. Verse 4 tells us that we no longer have to walk according to the flesh. Did you know that? Did you know that you don't have to be the victim of your feelings or your urges anymore? We no longer have to walk according to the flesh, but we can walk in the Spirit. And verse 5 tells us that this is a choice that we are now free to make. Before, you were subject to your carnal nature. But because you've been bought by the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you can walk out of that place in freedom. It also warns us in verse 6 that if we walk in the flesh, we walk in death. It also tells us in the same verse that if we walk in the Spirit, we walk in life. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. He says it again in verse uh, 11. And so the same Spirit that uh, raised Christ from the dead that dwells in you empowers you to continually choose to walk in the Spirit. Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, your old carnal nature, you will live. I don't want to walk around a corpse. Corpses smell. They decay. There's nothing good about a corpse unless it's resurrected and it's walking out of the tomb. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is only by partnering with the Holy Spirit that you put to death the deeds of the flesh and truly live. Now, having established that we can live according to the Spirit and not the flesh, let's go deeper because our sonship stems from this. If you go down to verse 14, he now begins to break this open because now what Paul is doing is breaking open the identity of sonship that we are all called to. So when you look at verse 14, he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, if I've got the hook of the enemy and he's dragging me around like this, I'm not walking in sonship, am I not? If the same old things that had a hold on me last week don't have less of a hold on me this week, something's wrong. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Being led, constantly surrendered, progressively putting to death the roots of our sinful attitudes is what releases our true identity and brings to maturity our sonship. Can I tell you, let's not be confused about this. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you became a son. 
But what God wants is mature sons. Because mature sons can be entrusted the authority of the kingdom to. Mature sons don't have their own agendas. They have his. We are made sons by the reconciliation of the cross. We are brought into the fullness of what that means by our sanctification, our progressively being put further and further and further away from our old sins and brought closer and closer and closeness, closer to walking in the holiness and purity that God already, already and always did intend for us. If we do not allow, invite, and embrace the sanctifying, purifying fire of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we will walk through our lives as orphans, never really walking in our full identity as sons. This is sobering. God wants mature sons. The ecclesia of Jesus, which is where we're going, the body of Christ around the world, in this purifying work that the Holy Spirit is doing right around the work, God is taking us out of the concept of church into the concept of ecclesia, not the concept, the identity of ecclesia. The ecclesia of Jesus desperately needs mature sons. As the ecclesia of Jesus Christ is being reformed in this season, a new steward, a new standard of sonship is being established. Think about a vineyard for a minute. Jesus talked a lot about vineyards. Let me give you a picture here. An immature child is not sent to oversee a vineyard. Because what happens when an immature son oversees a vineyard is they will eat all the grapes, let the weeds run wild and allow foxes into the vines until the whole thing is useless and provides sustenance to nobody except them. Whew. And Paul teaches us something very specific about sonship. Sons are free, but are joined inextricably to the Father in our identity as sons. I'm free. Right? He who the Son made free is free indeed. I'm free. But in sonship, I am bound to my Father. And in verse 15, as we continue through Romans 8, Paul teaches us something very specific about this. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. There is joy and terror in that expression. Abba, Father. The Bible contrasts the spirit of bondage or slavery with the spirit of adoption. What's the difference? Religion versus relationship. 
if my identity stems from my perception of how well I obey rules and regulations, or if I find my identity in my ministry, I'm not walking out sonship. What I'm actually doing is I'm opening the door to the religious spirit and the religious spirit is a very close ally to Jezebel. And so we open the door to fear and control and manipulation and sooner or later we will begin to manifest these things against those around us. There is a difference between authority and control. We talked about this last week. Authority is for your good and your benefit. Control is for mine. Manipulation is for mine. So I want to share a, a, a very, very brief testimony with you about something that happened to me about maybe a year and a half ago. And we were, and I've sat on this for a long time because I wanted to understand what the Lord was specifically trying to say to me when he spoke to me this way we were here on a Sunday morning and it was about 8 30 or so and the worship team had started um had started their worship practice and her praise and worship was beginning to rise in the house and the presence of the Lord was really sweet and I was walking up the stairs to the prayer room and uh as out of the blue God spoke to me and said you be ready to walk away from all of this when I ask you to. You be ready to walk away from all of this when I ask you to. Now, first, I made it about me. In that, I thought to myself, I even said to Kerry, Oh, I think God might be taking us elsewhere. But there was a, uh, but there was a hesitation even in the way I spoke that out because I wasn't sure. And then I realized that there was something deeper going on. And it was going on in, on a number of different levels. The first one being, what if God called me out of this body of believers right now, which he's not doing, if God asked, called me out of this body of believers into something else, what would I be leaving behind for the person who was given responsibility for our body of believers? And so I began to be very challenged on more than one level. Secondly, if my identity is in my ministry here, and it is suddenly taken away from me by good means or by bad means, would I lose my identity in him? Because very, there are hundreds of thousands of five-fold ministers around the world whose identity lies completely in their ministry. And if the ministry is taken away, they've got nothing left. Thirdly, God was challenging me that the things that we have touched upon over the last couple of years, these concepts of ecclesia, of harvest, of revival, 
when God eventually takes me out of here, perhaps because I retire, perhaps because he calls me elsewhere, perhaps because he raises somebody up and asks me to turn everything over to them, when, when God eventually does that, on Judgment Day, we don't talk about Judgment Day very much, do we? On Judgment Day, I'm going to stand before him and I'm going to give an account of what I did with you guys. Or more likely, what he did with you because I was following him with all my heart and my heart was for you to become all that you can become. See, if I'm not walking out sonship, I can't do those things like God would have me do them. If I'm not walking out sonship, I'm actually an orphan. Now, if I was walking as an orphan when God began to speak these things to me, reveal these things to me, I would make a wrong interpretation of what was going on in my life because orphans interpret correction as rejection. Because their identity hinges on their performance and the approval of others. Let me tell you what happens by a second testimony this morning when you allow this thing into your life. And usually it starts with rebellion and there is a humorous aspect to this story. But Heavenly Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that this is not what our church remembers this morning, the funny story or the funny aspect of it, but the message of what you're trying to impart to us. I was about 13 years of age and I had stepped into rebellion. I was in rebellion against my parents, authority, the school that I was in, everything. I had stepped into rebellion. I was bewitched by the spirit of rebellion. And I would wait till everyone was asleep and I would sneak out the window of my bedroom and I would go wandering all over Sydney in the middle of the night. And then I would climb back in the window pretend to be asleep at 10 to 7 when mum came in to wake us up and go to school with no sleep. And I would do this, you know, two or three nights a week. One night, I ended up in the centre of Sydney. I was on George Street and I saw a car parked there with the keys in the ignition. So I jumped in and stole it. No matter that I had only ever had one driving lesson on a dirt road where I nearly stacked my father's car into a tree. I jumped in this car, turned the key, it started, and I took off like a scalded cat all over Sydney. And I was dragging people off at sets of traffic lights, I was doing all sorts of stuff. And eventually I realised that the fuel was getting a bit low and I needed to get home and I didn't have any money to put fuel in. And if I walked up to the cashier or in the service station or they came out to put petrol in the car as they often did in those days, somebody was going to realise, hey, this is a 12, 13-year-old kid driving this car. What's he doing? And so I headed back towards home. We lived in Croydon at the time. And I got to Ashfield and I was on the Hume Highway and the car ran out of fuel about 100 metres from Asheville Police Station. And as I ran out of fuel, and as the car kind of drifted to a halt, just sitting there in the middle of the lane, nowhere near the traffic lights, who should pull up next to me but a couple of police officers? New South Wales' finest. Looking over and they go, God love it, what have we got here? 
and so, and so you know, praise God, they're only 100 metres from the police station. It wasn't a big job for them. So I got grabbed by the scruff of the neck. I got taken into the Asheville police station. And in those days, those of you who have a less salubrious past than others may recall this, if you've ever visited the inside of a police station under less than salubrious circumstances, that... Um, that the the uh, where the charge desk was next to it, they had the dock. They had a little wooden dock, and there was just enough room to to sit down if they allowed you to. But you had to stand there, and the dock was very confining. It was like a wooden thing that came up about this high. So they stood me in the dock, and then they went into good cop, bad cop. But I was uh, too young uh, to understand the concept of good cop. Bad cops. So I had one guy being very loving and understanding. Oh, what are you doing out at this time of night? And the senior sergeant of the station, who was bad cop, began to give me the ministry of the yellow pages. Now, those of you who remember the days of the yellow pages telephone directories in Sydney will remember that the yellow pages were books about that thick very, very fine paper, all these uh, phone numbers printed on them. The ministry of the Yellow Pages, some police officer at some point had discovered, God bless him, that when you hit somebody with a telephone directory, it doesn't lose, leave a bruise. And so this good cop would ask me, oh, so what were you doing out tonight? And I'd just make up whatever I could on the spot. And the other guy would sneak up behind me and go, Bell! <laughs> with the Yellow Pages, don't lie to us, you little... And uh, this went on for some time. This is the ministry of the uh, Yellow Pages. Until the police decided I'd had enough of that and then they called my dad. So, <laughs> so you can imagine, you know, 12, 13-year-old kid, I get back home and I received another chastising. No Yellow Pages this time. But at this point, things could have gone one or two ways. You know how God kind of has a tendency to intervene in your circumstances whether you want him to or not? Well, this was one of those moments. And so uh, under the Yellow Pages ministry <laughs> and under the chastising of my father, I could have and should have come to the conclusion that my life was not how it was supposed to be. I could have understood that I was being corrected and I could have submitted to the correction or I could have allowed my rebellion to fester and grow. I did the latter. I justified myself out of self-pity and I even managed a bit of self-righteousness. No matter that I had stolen somebody's car and raced it all over Sydney and could have killed myself in the process, no matter that I had taken somebody else's property and I should be thrown in a youth detention centre, that cop shouldn't have hit me. Is that self-righteousness or what? And my dad, <laughs> on Father's Day, if he, would, if he loved me, he wouldn't do this to me. I'm the victim. I've already been beat up by this cop. And what does Dan do? He gives me a belting. 
This is why the Bible says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, because it bewitches you, it gets a hold of you, it begins to manifest in your life, it comes to maturity, and it matures you as an orphan instead of a son. It didn't work out well for me because I became, in a sense, not just a prodigal, but an orphan by choice, just like the prodigal son rebelling so hard that I left the family and made myself an orphan. Orphans live in fear. They're anxious about position. They're anxious about identity. And we're not to do that because we have been adopted by the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit, as sons. What is the value? Now, we're talking about adopted now, right? Ooh, is there a difference? What is the value of an adopted son? What is the destiny and inheritance of the adopted son? Well, as we will see in the New Testament under the New Covenant, that it is the same in God's eyes as the value of the firstborn. And the Holy Spirit tells us, not just tells us, but bears witness within us, constantly infuses us if we will allow him with a revelation of identity and what he has called us into. This is who you are now, John. You are not who you used to be. You guys need to hear this. You are not who you used to be. You are a child of God. A child has inheritance. God's saying to us, I am growing you into your inheritance. Don't misinterpret what I am doing in your life. Don't interpret correction as rejection. Because the Bible says that God scourges those who he loves. Is that an uncomfortable truth for you? If it is, it's because you've been taught too much prosperity theology and not enough of the cross. I'm growing you into your inheritance. It will be messy. It will be painful. But it will be worth it. Remember Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 that we opened with. That God in these last days has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Remember that phrase right from right back to the start of this message. Our inheritance is so great that the word of God says we are joint heirs with Christ. And now, see, we're back in Romans now, Romans 8, 16 to 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And now something unfolds that is simultaneously beautiful but somewhat terrifying and also impossible without the Spirit of God continuously filling, continuously indwelling, filling and overflowing us and inspiring us into maturity. Because, see, the Bible doesn't stop there. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Wow, this is good, man, right? 
If, it goes on to say, indeed, we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. What? I've got to suffer? What? I thought this was all about living my best life now. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Where am I going with this? Luke 9.23 Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily. Not just take up your cross. Take up your cross daily and follow me. What is the inference of this statement of taking your cross up daily? Well, thank God for Paul because he tells us. 1 Corinthians 15.31, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. I die daily. We should all say that together. I die daily. You want to be a son? You want to walk in sonship? You want kingdom authority? You want to walk in the power of God and represent him well? Because God doesn't just want us to walk in his power. He wants us to represent him well. Doesn't matter how much power you've got. If you don't have character, eventually it'll all come apart. Don't let your anointing take you somewhere where your character cannot sustain you. Don't let your anointing take you somewhere where your character cannot sustain you. You want to represent God well? Get ready to die. (laughs) Hallelujah. See, this is joyful and painful at the same time, right? (laughs) Where does this all come together? Where do we see this actually played out in the Word of God? By the forerunner himself, Jesus, the one who's made a way for us to come boldly to the throne of grace, who has given us this beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit, who indwells us, who promises that that we will be baptized in power and in fire and that it will overflow and we will be witnesses to the end of the world. Where does all this come together? In the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is also everything I've just been talking about and the contrast between walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh comes into sharp focus like nowhere else in the Bible in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke 22, 41 to 42, it says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Do you understand that Jesus knew what he was facing? Father, he was waiting, knowing that those soldiers were coming. He was 
there waiting, knowing that his betrayer was walking down the path toward him. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, thank God, Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus in his humanity, you're familiar with the concept, right, that Jesus was tempted in all things just as we have been and we will be, yet without sin. Jesus was holy God, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and holy man, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He faced the same temptations you do. He faced the same temptations I do, but he took on all of our sin, all of our transgressions to such a degree that as he knelt there in the garden asking if somehow the cup could be passed, he was sweating drops of literal blood. This is the pressure that the Son of God came under in that moment before he said yes. Where are the joint heirs in this dreadful scene? We join heirs with Christ, right? Where are the joint heirs in this dreadful scene? The disciples, they're asleep. <laughs> the lesson here is not one of us would have been any different. Not one of us. They can't stay awake for even one hour. And this is not a surprise to Jesus. None of this is a surprise to Jesus. He knew what was coming. But when he felt all, felt all hell pressing in upon him, all hell, not just the little demon of temptation you'll face tomorrow morning not to go to work, <laughs> all hell poured out against him when he felt it. None of this was a surprise, None of, except perhaps the enormity of what was unleashed against him. And in that moment in his humanity, the temptation was there, the greatest temptation in the history of man. Walk away from the cross. But in John 14, 16 to 18, he gives us, Jesus gives us this incredible promise because he knows that without this thing, we're going to be just like those disciples asleep in the garden. I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. There's your example of visitation again. The spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. The, the world doesn't uh, neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you, right? So the Holy Spirit is with them before the cross. You've got to get this distinction. Holy Spirit is with them. And then he says, and will be in you. Do you get the difference? In the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples are there and they're asleep and the Holy Spirit's all around them. But he's not indwelling. And the purpose of this, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not 
leave you orphans. <laughs> Do you see the beautiful symmetry of the gospel at work in these passages? Do you see that Jesus always intended that his followers would not just be sleeping all week and coming to church for a couple of hours on Sunday, that they would be the living embodiment of what he came to be, that we would walk as joint heirs with Christ. Why? Because we were just as submitted, walked in just as much power and anointing. And in fact, he promised us greater because the Holy Spirit was coming. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Those disciples asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane were still orphans. They were disciples, not sons. Sleeping while Jesus agonized and sweated literal blood. All across the world, the church has been asleep. It's time for awakening. It's time for the sons of God to be revealed. Romans 8.13. I'm coming back to Romans because Paul ties it up really nicely. Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the death of deeds of the body, you will live. It's not God who puts those deeds of the body to death. It's us. Isn't that what it says? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. That's not you with a capital Y to say it's God doing it. It's us. Because the Holy Spirit enables us with freedom to choose. We can choose life or we can choose death. I want to walk in life. And then... uh, We'll skip down to Romans 8, 18 to 19. And he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8, 18. Who wants to be a carrier of the glory? Come on, church. Who wants to be a carrier of the glory? Get ready to die. (laughs) Get ready to die. We're actually called to dig our own grave. (laughs) For the earn and here it is. Here it is. You know, we live in a fallen, corrupted world. Paul goes on to say all of this about living by the Spirit and not being subject to death, making those choices, brings us to verse 19, which it says, for the, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. All creation is crying out. Yes, they're calling, and the creation is calling out, for God to come and put it all right or put or do away with it all together and give us a new heavens and a new earth. But before that can happen, the revealing of the sons of God comes first. Are you going to be a revelation of the Son of God to your world? It's time 
for the reformation of the church to begin. We talk about revival. We don't need revival. Ooh. And I'm in no way um, coming against what Anne-Marie was preaching on Friday night. I just want to give, give a definition here. Revival is when you bring something that is dead back to life, right? Like the, the, those... Comes back to life, right? The paddles. We don't need what we had. We need what God paid the ultimate price for us to be. There is a difference. Churchianity can stay dead. Reformation, the revelation of the sons of God, is what God is asking us to step into. Can I get the worship team up, please? I think we need to do some business with God this morning. You know, over the... uh, over the last few weeks, uh, this has been the most costly, challenging series I have ever preached at any time because I've been talking about becoming a forerunner. And over the next few weeks, I believe God's going to allow me to roll out what I believe that looks like for us as a body of believers. But over the last few weeks, God has been chipping away at our stubborn idolatries and the things that we have invited into our lives. He has been correcting and purifying me. He's been correcting and purifying my wife, Kerry, Pastor Kerry. He's been purifying and correcting and encouraging and challenging Anne-Marie, Lyndall. If I say, if I start singling... If I start singling people out, somebody will go, how come he didn't mention me? Just remember I said, get ready to die. That's a good point. That's a good point to die. He's been, he's been purifying our prophets. He's been raising up our prophets to greater levels. He's been raising up the ministry of the word. He's introducing signs, wonders and miracles into this place like we saw on Friday night. And I'm not even surprised because he wants to show off, Right? But he wants to show off in a way that we don't take credit for. It doesn't matter who prayed for that lady on Friday night. She got healed. <sighs> so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at what this might look like. What would Reformation look like in our body of believers? And even a wider application, what would Reformation look like in the church across the world? But let's get personal. Over the last few weeks, I've been uh, breaking open the false alabaster jar of the Jezebel spirit. And I've been talking about the different ways in which it can infest and manifest and affect, afflict and infect. And there is not one person here who has not been infected by that spirit in one way or another. And yet, 
I understand that it's a process that messages that are as challenging as that one has been, that series has been, it's a process for us to understand the areas in which we have become affected by these things. But I believe that this morning, because this is the end of this series, unless God corrects me when I get home and gives me something else, but I'm confident because of what I believe the Lord wants, to, wants me to take us into, that this is the end of this series. It is only fitting that we get personal with the Lord this morning. Because if we're going to die to self and move into what God has for us, we need to actually do business with the Lord personally and speak out the areas where these things have got hooks in us. Are there areas of your life that need to be reformed and transformed? It's not too late. It's never too late. One of the beautiful, beautiful messages of the gospel is that God is a redeemer. He is a redeemer of time. You might have felt like you were spinning your wheels for the last five years in your calling, in your ministry, and whatever. And God can take that five years and, and all the power that could have been available to you in that ministry could be poured out in one day. All it takes is us coming before the Lord and saying, God, this is, these are the hard attitudes that I've carried. These are the things that I've allowed into my life. These are the things that need to go. And I can't do it, but you can. And, and through you, I know I can put these things to death this morning. All things are possible by the Spirit of the Lord. That last song, Irene, please, in a minute. Because the Spirit of the Lord is here. Those of you watching on live stream, the Spirit of the Lord is right there right now. As you've been listening to the Word of God, God has been carving you up. He's been slicing and dicing you just as He's been slicing and dicing in this place. Because we're all in the same atmosphere. We're joined by the Spirit. The same thing that God is doing here, He wants to do in you. I want to make this... Uh, this, this, this public invitation to those on live stream, particularly those who have kind of watched this, this series unfold. If you haven't, they're all on our uh, YouTube channel, this whole series on the forerunner. The last four Sundays have been about this. Um, as the Holy Spirit begins to put His finger upon the areas of your heart that need to be put right, I just invite you to come in simple repentance. And I just declare to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess them. And He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The things that you were infected by and affected by before, they will have to leave. Because a truly repentant heart, the enemy cannot get his hooks into. So just as we launch into worship, and I invite those in our church here, our ecclesia, to come forward and uh, do business with the Lord. There's two words of knowledge that I want to release this morning. And um, I'm sure there's going to be people watching on live stream, whether it's live or whether it's in a few days, as some people watch uh, our YouTube. Um, they might have been affected by this. 
And so the first, I've, got, I've only got two words of knowledge this morning. The first one uh, is for somebody who has a completely twisted view of fatherhood because you were brutally beaten time and time again. And your concept of what a father is like has been so twisted and so skewed that only the Spirit of the Lord can put it right. And the Spirit of the Lord wants to put it right now. He wants to take out the power of those memories of what you went through so that you can have a right view of what it means to be a son in submission to a heavenly Father who does not come to beat you unmercifully into submission. Yes, He chastises, but that's part of the beauty of God. He does it because He wants us to be perfected. Second one, and I know that there's one person here who's going to uh, respond definitely on behalf of somebody else. But there's somebody apart from that person, and you have recurrent anxiety or panic attacks where you can't breathe. You absolutely cannot breathe. It's like your lungs are seized in a vice and you cannot take a breath. You black out from this thing sometimes and God wants to set you free. So I want to declare freedom over these two conditions on live stream this morning. And then we're going to minister here. When you come forward, it's not just for these two words of knowledge. Whatever the Lord puts on your heart to repent of and get right with God about, you just do that. But I want to speak to the person who is brutally beaten. I want to tell you that God loves you as a perfect father. Your revelation of what a father is, is twisted and incomplete. God says, I'm putting it right, right now. If you just bring your pain, bring your agony to him in this moment, God is going to take out what has wrongfully twisted your heart. And he's going to make it uh, pure and straight in devotion toward him. And you are going to receive a revelation of the goodness of God in these moments. I'll release that over you to this morning on live stream. The person or people who have been suffering recurrent anxiety or panic attacks where you can't breathe. <coughs> There's a manifestation of it right there. Recurrent anxiety or panic attacks where you can't breathe. I speak the breath of God into your lungs. I speak the breath of God into your spirit. I speak the breath of God, the breath but by which you were animated in the first place, by which you were formed out of the dust. We, I speak the breath of God into your lungs, spiritual and physical, so that you might receive your healing this morning in Jesus' mighty name. We're opening it up at the front here. Thank you for joining us on live stream. Kim, can you uh, close the live stream down in the next, you know, Thank you.